Our party helped build the first rank and file committees that organized the United Steelworkers of America. We took the initiatives that became the backbone for the union organizing drives of the auto workers, the textile, electrical, rubber, and oil workers, amongst others. Our party pioneered the union organizing drives in all of the mass production industry. Communist workers and trade unionists were the spark that ignited and gave rise to the CIO and the greatest labor upsurge in the history of our nation. Welcome to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and Jacobin Magazine. I'm your host, Benjamin Fong. Speaking at the beginning there was Gus Hall, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the USA for over 40 years, but for my purposes, 27-year-old militant charged with dynamiting 80 feet of railroad track between Warren and Niles, two steel company towns in Ohio, in June 1937. This was but one of the many dramatic actions taken during the five-month Little Steel Strike, the subject of this episode. It might appear excessive to devote an entire episode of the podcast to one strike, but Little Steel is in many ways a turning point, a key hinge in our story. To capture it well, we also need to delve into the more general history of steel organizing in America, a fantastically brutal affair that reveals the soul of American capitalism. Here's David Brody setting the scene by describing the transformation of the steel industry in the late 19th century. Before the modern steel industry emerged or became dominant, the production of iron and steel was a sort of a craft process. The puddlers who uh, took molten uh, pig iron and worked it into steel the uh, rollers who took this and made slate and uh, other steel forms was all craft workers. And the steel industry was transformed by a new technology in the late 19th century, that is, uh, new blast furnaces, very large, Bessemer refining, automated rolling, and all these steps integrated into regular flow. You've got these great steel plants like at Homestead and these new steel corporations, which emerged as the United States Steel Corporation in 1901. With the creation of these large modern steel plants, the older craft unions of puddlers and rollers declined and new forms of intense labor conflict appeared. Ahmed White and again David Brody. Steel was a a kind of poster child for what had happened to American labor, American organized labor in the preceding half century or so. The industry was home to the formation of some of the first modern unions in America that, like most unions that arose in the wake of the Civil War, were organized on a craft basis among skilled workers who at the time played an integral role in ferrous metal production and in what was then mainly iron production. Those unions had been steadily eroded in power and influence, and some of them completely destroyed in a process that was punctuated by some notable surges in activism and labor conflict, such as what happened in Homestead, Pennsylvania, Homestead Affair, and the strike and the the violence, um, the lockout and the strike and the violence surrounding 
that these craft unions were eroded in power at the same time that there had been through those decades, no successful effort to establish organizing on an industrial basis. And so the uh, modern steel industry as it emerged in the 20th century was essentially non-union. There were efforts made to organize this new sector, which failed. In 1919, there was a great effort that arose out of World War I and a great militancy on the part of steel workers at that point. It led to the great steel strike of 1919, which was the biggest recognition strike in our history, I think, and that failed. How exactly did the steel companies resist unionism so effectively during this period? It took a variety of forms. There was a whole industry of spying and munitions uh, production and uh, industrial police that were used to enforce the open shop. Later in the 1920s, as the industry stabilized and uh, was profitable in a generally prosperous era, you got the first vestiges of welfare capitalism. They began to try and provide benefits and be more benevolent, tried to listen to workers, took a variety of forms, but this was another side of resisting uh, unions and collective bargaining. So a sort of a, just as it is today with, say, uh, Amazon, which is resisting unions, it's the same psychology of wanting independence and freedom from limitations by collective bargaining. And they had the means and they had the ruthlessness until they kept an open shop. Now the man that fights for honor, none can blame him. May lock a tent wherever he may roam. And no son of his will ever live to shame him. Whilst liberty and honor Now, by the mid-1930s, the steel industry remained largely unorganized. There had been first a further collapse in union representation and the power and influence of the craft unions in particular on the part of something called the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers, the AA, which in the early years of the Depression, the first years of the New Deal, was not much more than a shell organization. But it did provide, in the mid-1930s, in the years just preceding the Little Steel Strike, a structure around which there had been a significant upsurge in organizing in steel. A lot of it spontaneous or relatively spontaneous a lot of it led by dissidents within the AA structure, and in many cases led by people who were connected with the Communist Party. This upsurge didn't yield any lasting organizing gains, but it's pretty clear that it provided a foundation on which the CIO was then able to build its organizing campaign beginning in 1936 and extending into 1937. Indeed, one of John L. Lewis's first moves with the CIO was to seize the AA as a starting point for organizing the industry. As I covered in episode two, organizing steel was of great interest to Lewis and the mine workers. To organize the half million workers of the mighty steel industry, long an impenetrable stronghold of the open shop, 
He formed the Committee for Industrial Organization, backed by 10 of the Federation of Labor's biggest unions. Into Pittsburgh, heart of steeldom, marched this tough two-fisted coal miner to launch an organization drive that would cost $75,000 a month. They had an interest in seeing that the industrial sector became organized. Part of that was just their belief that it was a good thing for the labor movement, but there was a more specific interest that Lewis and the miners had because some of the coal mines were operated by the great steel companies, what was called the the captive mines. And as long as the captive mines were non-union, it was an element of um, instability from the point of view of the mine workers. And so they wanted to organize these captive mines. And in order to do it, they thought they had to organize the steel industry. That was a particular interest that they had in mind. But the larger one was the opportunity was there. There was a belief that these people, these industrial workers, deserved to be uh, represented and have economic justice, and they wanted to do it. And he brought the leadership and the resources from the mine workers into the early CIO. Here is John L. Lewis delivering a speech entitled Industrial Democracy in Steel, in July 1936. It may be said that the Committee for Industrial Organization in organizing the steel workers is animated by no selfish motive. Its fundamental purpose is to be of service to all those who work by head or hand in the mines, quarries, railroads, blast furnaces, and mills of the steel industry. Our committee would bring to the steel workers economic and political freedom a living wage to those lowest in the scale of occupation, sufficient for the support of the worker and his family in health and modest comfort, and sufficient to enable him to send his children to school, to own a home and accessories, to provide against sickness, death, and the ordinary contingencies of life. In other words, a wage sufficient for him to live as an independent American citizen with hope and assurance in the future for himself and his family. And the vehicle for organizing the steel workers was what was called the Steel Workers Organizing Committee. This was an innovation. There hadn't been anything like it before. Lewis put $500,000 into it right off the bat. And he put his second in command, Philip Murray, in charge. And they hired several hundred organizers and went out and organized. And so it was a temporary thing, was intended to be. In 1942, it became United Steelworkers of America. But it was a very effective way of concentrating organizing power, very effective, but on the other hand, also not democratic. That is, it was ruled from the top rather than from what would be normally the case by the local unions and their representatives and a national union that was independent. Uh, When it became independent, it still maintained those characteristics of sort of top-down unionism. As I covered on episode three, the organization of U.S. Steel was agreed upon at a series of meetings at the Willard Hotel between John L. Lewis and Myron Taylor. It would be difficult to be any more top-down than that. But there was also important work done by the SWAC before this agreement in March 1937 to pave the way for it. Nelson Lichtenstein. 
the Steelworkers Organizing Committee is formally and in reality very authoritarian, run from the top. And when it becomes the United Steelworkers of America, that continues. Compared to the auto workers, it's considered very much a kind of top-down operation. That's true, but but I just want to add that at the very bottom, there's a, a lot going on that is not apparent you know, in the newspaper headlines of that day. Paradoxically, that agitational work from below went through the form of the employee representation plans, the company unions at the steel companies had set up in order to stave off independent organizing. In steel, there had been this history of of organization going back decades. And one of the things that the steel industry had done, because they'd had this experience with unionism and they didn't like it, the steel uh, companies formed company unions. And they are set up and funded by the company. But they're designed to include rank and file workers, but also some middle managers as well, superintendents, foremen, people of that sort. In the mid-30s, many of these company unions had a good deal of support from you know, ordinary workers. They were, you know, they were not part of the Steelworkers Organizing Committee. They were really controlled by the companies. You could say one, one strategy was these are just phony unions and you know, run by the bosses and to hell with them. You know, let's let's form a, you know, the communists had done that earlier on. But the strategy of the Steelworkers Union, which I think was the right one, was to say, we want to go into the company unions and take them over, which is what they did. And so many of these company unions became locals of the Steelworkers Union. Now, here's what's good about that. The management in seeking to control the workforce would bring in levels of of workers who in otherwise would be excluded from the union, like foremen and certain kinds of specialists, people they viewed as loyal to the company. But once those company unions become locals of the of the steelworkers, you have a, a, a denser and, and, and more extensive membership than in other places. And so some of the company unions would become particularly militant steelworker locals. By January 1937, many company unions had voted to join the SWAC which claimed a membership of 125,000. The lesson here for Liechtenstein is simple. You know, you go where the workers are. Whatever kind of organization, in, in electrical, they've had fishing clubs or something, you know, or baseball teams. Wherever the workers are, you go. That's where you go. You know, I, I would say that today, companies have learned that lesson. So it used to be that these company unions we formed, you know, even in the 40s. Today, it's almost like a cardinal rule. An anti-union company never creates an organization where workers can be together. I mean, so Walmart, which I studied, there's no like company Walmart, you know, even picnics, even picnics, they don't, have, you know, you, you never do that. Okay, so the SWAC had made this enormous breakthrough, having had some success taking over the company unions, and then benefiting from the results of the Flint strike to get Myron Taylor to agree to have the U.S. steel workforce organized. This is the setup for the confrontation in Little Steel. Ahmed White. Little Steel, the term denotes a group of basic steel companies, integrated steel producers that were not little. They were very large corporations in terms of employees, in terms of capital, in terms of production. In the ranks of Little Steel were uh, Bethlehem Steel, Republic Steel, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, Inland Steel, and then, for most purposes, one could also include Jones and Laughlin Steel, Armco or American Rolling Mill, and National Steel slash Weirton Steel. These, again, every one of them was a, a large and heavily capitalized producer. 
of basic steel. And they are to be distinguished from big steel, which was U.S. steel, and small steel, which denoted a, a great number of specialty producers, relatively small companies that, for the most part, did not produce basic steel for the open market, but rather specialty forms of steel. Little steel ended up in a bitter labor dispute with the SWAC, with the CIO. And four of these companies, Bethlehem, Republic, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, and Inland, were involved in that strike. They, in many ways, probably provoked that strike with the idea that it would advance their interests to do so. And over the course of this dispute, which began on the 26th of May, 1937 and extended into the summer, ending at different times in different places and with different companies. About 75,000 or so workers initially went out on strike and soon to be even more than that. And uh, 16 or 18 people were killed. Somewhere north of 1,000 people were arrested. It was one of the last really violent strikes in American history. In many ways, a telling moment in the country's labor history and the country's legal history in some ways, and and a telling moment as well in the course of American capitalism. The strike started on May 26, 1937. A few days later, on Memorial Day, workers gathered for a picnic near Republic Steel in South Chicago. Elizabeth Cohen and Ahmed White. And there was a big picnic around Memorial Day in 1937. And when workers really tried to march to the plant from this big open field, they were met by the Chicago police, and many of them were hurt, and a few were actually killed. And that was a reminder that the the state was not always on their side. There were limits, and local police were often a representation of that limit. The single most violent episode in the Little Steel Strike itself, uh, the Memorial Day Massacre at the South Chicago Works of Republic Steel on Memorial Day when the Chicago police shot and, and killed or mortally wounded 10 workers who were part of a large group of union people trying to establish a mass picket line at the gate, the main gate of Republic's plant there. They had, of course, been turned around several times in the preceding days. And on that occasion, they were met, as they had been before, by a large contingent of the Chicago police who blocked them and confronted them and inflamed them. And who knows exactly what started the shooting. It doesn't seem that there was much in the way of provocation on the part of the union people before the Chicago police opened fire. But regardless, they opened fire and they they killed uh, 10 people and wounded uh, dozens of others. And it was quite a tragic episode. Here's an account of that episode from a CIO documentary. Again, pardon the scratchy sound. A vivid close-up shows the head of the parade being halted by a group of 150 police. Suddenly, without apparent warning, there was a terrific roar of pistol shots. And the men in the front ranks of the marches go down like grass before a scythe. The policemen charge the marches with riot sticks flying. Tear gas grenades are seen sailing into the midst of the marches. The crowd is in flight. The ground is strewn with dead and wounded. In several instances, from two to four policemen are seen beating one man. One strikes him across the face, using his club as he would a baseball bat. Another crashes it down on top of his head. And still another 
another is whipping him across the back. Thirty persons, including one woman and three minors, received gunshot wounds. Ten men died. Seven shot in the back and three in the side. None were hit in the front. That was 1937. On Dark Republic's bloody ground, the 30th of May. Oh, brothers, lift your voices high for them that died that day. The men who make our country steal, the toilers in the mill. They said in union is our strength and justice is our will. We will not be Tom Girdler's slaves, but free men will we be. Listen to the voices from their graves, we died to set you free. In ordered ranks they all marched on to picket Girdler's mill. They did not know that Girdler's cops had orders shoot to kill. Remarkably, the Memorial Day massacre did not end the strike, and in fact the SWAC kept it going for another five months. From an organizing perspective, Ahmed White believes it was a truly heroic effort. I mean, it's easy to look at Little Steel as a failure, and indeed it was, but as a failure that somehow points to the inadequacy of organizing efforts in the course of the strike itself. And I think that's actually unfair. If you look at the strike, what's remarkable is how long the union managed to keep people out in places where workers had been shot and some of them killed and been beaten and thousands of them arrested. And it did that, again, in a context where there was a great deal of ethnic and racial diversity and a long tradition of conflict and segregation in the mills. Daniel Nelson offered a few reasons why the strike ultimately failed. Well, that was certainly a, a disaster, and it emphasizes the, the importance of the context of these events. U.S. Steel Agreement had come along very easily, uh, unlike uh, these various strikes in the rubber and auto industry. And uh, so there was great expectation uh, for the so-called little steel companies, which are not really so little. And the, the strike there in 1937 was incredibly ill-timed, coming just at the time when the economy started to collapse. And it uh, faced um, much more traditional anti-union activity, and I think critical importance, it occurred in smaller communities where the local officials and, and the local establishment was very wary of anything that would interrupt the, what they saw as the prosperity of the, of the community. And so it was fairly easy for employers in those communities to mobilize uh, opposition on the part of local officials, on the part of state officials, on the part of the Chicago police, who were uh, AFL guys, <laughs> not not very happy with the CIO. In any case, it was comparatively easy for the employers to board the workers' organizing committee. As a result, the strike collapsed, and uh, at the same time that the economy collapsed, and, and the combination was was absolutely devastating. Melvin Dubofsky also emphasized the importance of the economic situation here. The Roosevelt administration, thinking that it had succeeded 
in ending depression said it was time to moderate. Roosevelt, when he first ran for the presidency in 1932, had emphasized that his policies would lead to a balanced budget. The New Deal engaged in what at that time was aggressive deficit financing, borrowed money to reinflate and stimulate the economy. Well, Roosevelt and his advisors thought they had achieved success. So now was the time to economize, to move toward budget balance. The New Deal pulled back financially. What was the result? In the latter half of 1937, the economy began to contract again. And by 1938, it was entering what was soon called the Roosevelt Depression. What happened to the mass production sector? Demand for their products declined. What happens when you're producing less? You need fewer workers. So you begin to lay off workers. What happens when the labor market loosens, when employers have less reason or motivation to deal with worker demands? They become much tougher in dealing with the unions that they've initially recognized, becomes much harder to get a second contract. Now, firms are demanding givebacks. Now, as I'll cover in more detail in Episode 7, this was ultimately only a temporary situation. The war and the ramping up of production for the war would change things entirely. David Brody. In 1941, they agreed to recognize the union through the processes of the Labor Relations Act. That is, there were elections, the uh, other steelworkers won the elections, and then you had collective bargaining. And so it was a terrible event, a little steel strike, but it was only a temporary uh, setback. And the underlying reason why it happened was that the economy changed. In 1937-38, the economy went into recession. By 1941, we were tooling up for World War II, and there was a labor shortage, and you couldn't have strikes. So the whole sort of economic situation had shifted. And so in 1941, you had collective bargaining and little steel, too. Ahmed White, however, doesn't believe that we should simply see little steel as a temporary setback. The usual way to remember Little Steel has been as a footnote, that the CIO was, to use a commonly used uh, metaphor, on the march. If we remember when this strike occurred, it began just a few weeks after the capitulation of General Motors, of Chrysler, of U.S. Steel. It also is significant because it began just a few weeks after the United States Supreme Court issued its landmark ruling in the case uh, National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel, in which it upheld the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Act. 
And with that, of essentially the entire New Deal and set the foundations, the legal foundations on which have been built the modern administrative state and uh, the modern structures of New Deal liberalism. So all of that happened just weeks before this strike began. And in the wake of the strike, it's true that eventually the CIO kind of found its footing again. And during the war years, organized millions more members, setting in place the structure on which was based um, the, the tremendous expansion in the power of organized labor into the 19, through the 1940s and into the 1950s, lasting through the 1960s and into the 1970s. So it's, it's easy to see why it's so tempting to dismiss the Little Steel Strike as a temporary setback. Now, it certainly was a setback. Everyone admits that the strike was kind of categorically lost by the SWAC, with the exception of Inland Steel, which entered an agreement to end the dispute at that company that didn't give the CIO very much, but it didn't take anything away, at least. Uh, At the other companies, the CIO got nothing. And in fact, at Republic Steel, thousands of employees were effectively fired by the company. And the CIO's uh, situation in the mills was much reduced. So there's no doubt it was a a significant setback, but the argument has been that it was a temporary setback. My argument is that it was more than that, that the strike was a test, a test of the power of the CIO and where it stood politically in the New Deal coalition, and a test that it, in a sense, failed in that the strike demonstrated how relatively weak the CIO was, how weak a position it occupied in New Deal politics. It was a test as well of New Deal labor law. So it's very significant in this regard that this was the first major strike to unfold after the Supreme Court upheld the National Labor Relations Act, which had been tied up in the courts in in dozens and dozens of cases, not just the Jones and Laughlin case, but dozens and dozens of other cases in which, in a concerted campaign, employers had, had challenged the constitutionality of the act and the authority of the National Labor Relations Board. Well, once the Supreme Court case was decided in on April 12th of 1937, then the agency could go to work. And it it went to work in the Little Steel case, in the cases that emerged inevitably and very quickly, I might add, out of the dispute that led to and that comprised the strike in the summer of 1937. And what the strike revealed was that the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board were, while not insignificant, didn't fundamentally alter the balance of power between labor and capital. The statute and the agency would work as means of mitigating, structuring, administering the inequality between labor and capital. But what they did not do was substantially alter that balance of power. And that was evident in the inability of the law and the agency to hold these companies to account for what they'd done, let alone to stop them from breaking this strike in the first place. And that was true, even though they acted in ways that were to the minds of anyone who has any sort of meaningful view of labor rights entirely, entirely unacceptable, brutal, violent, contemptuous, all of that. They did all of that, and yet neither the statute nor the agency could really hold them to account, not in a significant way. And I think in in that regard, the strike really 
demonstrated something quite significant about New Deal labor law and frankly about the New Deal and, and by anticipation about post-war liberalism, what it would be and, and most notably what it would not be. As journalist Mary Heaton Vorse wrote of the strike, This attack on organized labor by Little Steel, with its shabby pretext of being willing to make, if not sign, a contract such as U.S. Steel has signed, involves far larger issues than the little lives of a few thousand steelworkers. It was the looked-for assault of big business on the administration. It is naive to consider the steel strike the work of Tom Girdler and a small group of willful men. Every evidence points to Girdler's offensive having been a planned attack on the administration by big business, of which the independent seal companies were the spearhead. Behind them was the force of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, buttressed by the other powerful anti-administration forces in Congress and outside. One has to wonder, then, if the failure of Little Steel was always fated to be, given its context. That's an interesting question, and the answer I'm most inclined to give is that things were fated to go the way they did. I do think that there's some interesting questions to ask about the politics within the SWAC, within the CIO, politics that pitted CIO establishment led by Phil Murray and other lieutenants brought into the CIO structure by Lewis, uh, many of them, most of them from the United Mine Workers, and all of them pretty conservative people. And their interplay with a strong element in the CIO, in the SWAC, uh, that was both militant and in many ways radical in its aspirations and in its conduct. So one of the notable features of this whole story, of course, is the role of radicals, most of them associated with the Communist Party, in the organizing effort. So initially there were dozens, eventually scores, of organizers in the CIO's campaign here at Little Steel, who were closely tied to some of them actual members of the Communist Party. There were thousands and thousands of rank and filers who sympathized with the communists, and there were many, many thousands more who respected them and followed them on the shop floors. And so there was this element, and it closely overlapped with a strongly militant element. This was maybe put best on display in Northeast Ohio, and nowhere more so than in and around Niles and Warren, Ohio, and to a considerable degree into the Youngstown area, where there were a great number of production of large mills and production complexes. In that area, a number of notable communists were uh, central to the organizing effort, uh, none more notable than Gus Hall himself. These people were at the forefront of some of the most militant organizing in the course of the campaign to organize Little Steel and in the course of the strike that followed. And they were, for a time at least, very effective at meeting the company's organized violence with their own tactics, some of which were themselves violent. Given the real tension between the top-down and bottom-up elements in the SWAC, one might speculate that giving more of a leash to rank-and-file militancy would have tilted the balance of power in the SWAC's favor. Would more militancy have better availed the CIO campaign? That's not, I think, a trivial question at all. But it's not a simple question either, because it begs the added question, what would have followed from that militancy? What kinds of responses would that have 
garnered on the part of state and local governments and on the part of the Roosevelt administration itself, which I think had a limited tolerance for this kind of militancy. They showed that in the strike as it was. Roosevelt, of course, famously declared the strike a plague upon both your houses, angering many people in the CIO, not least John L. Lewis himself. And the New Deal governors in Ohio and Pennsylvania quite faithfully ordered their state troops into the strike areas uh, for the purpose of overseeing the reopening of the mills, citing the disorder that had followed from clashes between militant unionist on the one hand and company forces on the other. So in the light of that, one can also ask the question, had there been more militancy, would there not maybe likely have been an even more certain response from elements of the New Deal to bring the strike to an end and to use, if necessary, military force to do so, active military force to do so? This seems to lend credence to John L. Lewis and others' belief that the public had grown wary of the waves of agitation and that the forces of reaction had firmly set in. Yeah, I think there's reason to believe that Lewis was right, although I'm quick to qualify that by suggesting that whatever the public thought about this, its thoughts were framed by the concerted efforts of a number of prominent elites in government in industry associations, and in the newspapers to depict the sit-down strikes in as negative a light as possible. And I think the same was true with Little Steel. And so, yes, people like Lewis were right. As far as we can tell, there probably was declining support or tolerance for this kind of militancy. But, you know, subject to this process by which this kind of militancy was just sort of packaged and presented to the public. And I I think that's critical. And I I think that's what it means to say that you live in a society in which these capitalists wield extraordinary power and considerably more power than workers. That's how they wield it. In some instances at the point of a gun, but in many instances by their ability to shape perceptions of strikes and, and strike militancy. That man, that union, through and through, John Catchings is his name. He leads the men on the picket line, and he's the one we've got to frame. When we reduce the wages down, or double up a job or two, Or when the price of the rent goes up, he criticizes me and you. He's taught his family union ways, his wife and children all. He tells them they must organize, because divided they will fall. So he's the one we've got to frame. No matter what it will entail, we'll put him safely underneath the sheriff's big rock county jail. Melvin Dubofsky situated the little steel strike within a broader turn of fortune for the CIO. 
the labor upsurge in the first part of 1937 had frightened enormous numbers of Americans. And politicians, office holders, began to receive letters from ordinary citizens, pressure from employers, from financial markets, worrying about labor taking over the country. And so even New Deal Democrats begin to draw back from their support of labor. What happens? The little steel companies defeat the strike. Ford has no difficulty holding out against the United Automobile Workers. In a loosened labor market, it's very difficult to win anything. And the companies become much, much harder in their bargaining. On top of that, the CIO especially the mine workers, had expended an enormous amount of money, one, in supporting the Democratic Party in the 1936 election, and two, in organizing the mass production sector. They had a lot of new union members, but they did not have all that many dues-paying union members. Dues had to be collected individually from each member. It was not easy. And then, as the economy tightened in late 37 and 38, union members were even more hesitant to pay dues. So as the treasuries of the existing unions shrank, CIO cut back. It laid off organizers. It had fewer paid officials who helped manage the new unions. And suddenly, CIO and labor no longer seemed a rising power. In fact, the term that I think the best historian of CIO, Robert Ziegler, used is that CIO, even at its peak, was a fragile juggernaut. It looked more powerful than it actually was. And so by the end of 1938, you have all kinds of forces working against CIO. In Congress, you now have, instead of a dominant New Deal majority, you have an alliance between Republicans and Southern Democrats. They're investigating CIO, the National Labor Relations Board, and accusing both of being communist. And you have what amounts to an anti-CIO hysteria. And the AFL plays its part in encouraging that. The AFL was far less subject to losing members and power in the so-called Roosevelt Depression. 
Again, unlike CIO, whose strength was concentrated in particular sectors of the country, AFL had a presence everywhere. The AFL had members and influence in every state and almost every middle size to large city. By contrast, CIO was concentrated in the Northeast and the Midwest, had no members to speak of in huge areas of the country. And so by the end of 1938, 1939, CIO seemed a spent force, still having failed to organize Ford or the so-called little steel companies or many, many other firms in the mass production sector. Thanks again for joining me on Organize the Unorganized. On next week's episode, I'm going to discuss some of the key CIO unions that have not gotten much attention thus far. The UE, the ILWU, the Textile Workers Organizing Committee, and the Packing House Workers Organizing Committee. I'll leave you with a little bit more of that speech of Lewis's on industrial democracy in steel. I speak for the Committee for Industrial Organization which has honored me with its chairmanship and with which is associated 12 great national and international unions. These unions have a membership in excess of one million persons who to a greater or lesser degree enjoy the privileges of self-organization and collective bargaining. They reflect adequately the sentiment, hopes, and aspirations of those 30 million additional Americans employed in the complex processes of our domestic economy who heretofore have been denied by industry and finance the privilege of collective organization and collective participation in the arbitrary fixation of their economic status. Let him doubt who will that tonight I portray the ceaseless yearning of their hearts and the ambitions of their minds. Let him who will, be he economic tyrant or sordid mercenary, pit his strength against this mighty upsurge of human sentiment, now being crystallized in the hearts of 30 millions of workers who clamor for the establishment of industrial democracy and for participation in its tangible fruit. He is a madman or a fool who believes that this river of human sentiment, flowing as it does from the hearts of these 30 million who with their dependence constitute two-thirds of the population of the United States of America, can be dammed or impounded by the erection of arbitrary barriers of restraint. <laughs>